questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's special guest argues that the human species is at a tipping point when it is forced to choose between a New World Order fascist government committed to rapid depopulation or a world of peace and justice. He demonstrates that God is alive, well and everywhere, and that humanity's choice is between the dark and the light. To follow the light means giving up atomic weapons, replacing the oil economy with clean zero-point energy developed by Americans in the 1960s and more. Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's special guest is the Honorable Paul Hellier, former Minister of National Defense for Canada and one of Canada's most controversial politicians. Mr. Hellier was Canada's youngest member of Parliament when he was first elected in 1949 and the youngest cabinet minister appointed to Louis S. St. Laurent's government eight years later. In recent years, he has become interested in the extraterrestrial presence and the superior technology that we have been emulating. In September 2005, he became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally, quote, UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead, unquote. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. And directly from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, I would like to welcome the Honorable Paul Hellier. Hello, Paul, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Thank you. It's great to be back. It's great. I will say this with the utmost respect. Our last interview was in 2011, when you were at the tender age of 88, Paul. You are now 95, and you seem to sharper and busier than ever. And I hope you can agree right now that we have to celebrate in the future your 100th birthday here. Well, I don't know about that. It's, it might interest you and uh, your listeners that uh, next month I celebrate the 70th anniversary of my graduation from college and the 7th anniversary of my first election on June the 27th, 1949. That's just incredible. And Paul, we haven't talked in nine years. I just finished reading your latest book. But why don't you just give us some summary of what has happened in the nine years. Tell us what you've gained in research, some of the contributions you've given to, to the Disclosure Movement. Tell us more. Well, in the last nine years, I have uh, researched and uh, studied and been interviewing people and uh, have been interviewed and have done all sorts of things. And uh, more recently, the last eight years, I have written three books. Actually, uh, the last one was my 15th, and my wife says will be my final book. We'll see. I think she's right about that. Um, but I wrote three books in what has now become a trilogy. The first one was eight years ago, called Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species. When I wrote that, Mel, I thought it was my last book for sure, because I said uh, just about everything I wanted to say, and I really didn't think there was going to be need uh, for any further books. It was a good book, and it's still selling. But uh, four years later, I learned so much in the intervening four years, and so much that was important, not just to a few people, but to all of the people of the United States and all of the people of the world. And I said, hey, I have got to write another book. So I wrote The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis. It has become something of a, a classic. It too is still selling well, which for which I am very grateful. And I certainly thought that was the end. Well, then in the next four years, I found out a few things 
including, as you would know from reading my latest book about the origin of the cosmos and uh, some of the things that are happening that uh, are relevant to the future of ourselves and uh, our planet and uh, and so on. And uh, I didn't know what to do with it because there wasn't really enough for a book, just uh, a few ideas. We're going to take a few chapters. So uh, a friend, a former member of parliament, actually uh, from the other side of the house, but a, a good friend, um, said, why don't you write your memoirs? And he's been goading me for years to do that. And so I thought, well, maybe I could write my memoirs in brief, because it is in brief, and then tack on the last few chapters, those new things, which uh, I think should be said, and which I would like to say. So that is what happened. And the book is called Hope Restored. It's an autobiography, but it covers a lot of territory. The first 20 years cover all the period from my early days on the ginseng farm where I was raised right through until the end of my political career in 2000 and uh, 2000 and what year four 2004 and then uh, what I have learned since then and uh, so I put it all together in, in a new book because I think the situation is really desperate something has got to be done and uh, done very soon and um, so I had to make my small contribution to spread the word because there's so many people that still haven't a clue what's been going on these last 70 years that we have to have far more disclosure and more people working at it more books more shows and all that sort of thing and then uh, hope that once more people understand that they will say to their legislators we want some action we Politicians talk too much and they don't do enough, and they seem to be spending a lot of time quarreling and so on. When the, these uh, huge, huge monumental uh, issues facing the future of the planet are not yet resolved and have to be resolved. So, why don't you uh, get together, set up a bipartisan committee, and uh, and provide an amnesty from the for the uh, National Security Act? one that uh, President Truman put in place to uh, keep uh, under wraps what was going on in those early days in the late 40s, early 50s, and ever since, apparently. And, uh, and let people talk and let them tell the United States taxpayers and the Congress and the former presidents what has been going on since 1947 and why there has been so much secrecy and so little truth made public, and uh, what it means and where we go from here. And there are, as you know, there are dozens of, when I say whistleblowers, I really mean uh, truth-tellers or potential truth-tellers who would like to say what they've been doing and what they think uh, it means as far as the United States is concerned and the world and uh, don't dare do so because the penalties under the NSA are just too are too great. They have too great a cost for them and their families. So I think this is what we have to do is get a lot of people, especially the young people, to get in touch with their legislators and say, we want you to set up the, the committee. We want you to find out what's been going on. And then we want you to act based on what you learn when you find out what's been going on. And if we can do that, then Americans can reclaim the control of their country and they can start making the changes that have to be made so that we can continue with a democratic system and government of, by, and for the people and avoid the present uh, what plan, I guess, is the best way of putting it, of a very few people, of having just the opposite which is a, a fascist, uh, unelected state for most of the world, or all of it, if they could get away with it, and uh, for, uh, by, and for the benefit of probably one-tenth of one percent 
of the people in the world. And they just happen to be the one-tenth of one percent who need help least and who should be taking the opposite point of view and trying to help uh, the majority of people in the world who are uh, barely eking out a living. And some of them don't have enough money in the bank to uh, cover their next mortgage payment. So that's sort of a background of uh, where I've been going and uh, where I am at the present time. And before we begin, let me just, uh, speaking of disclosure, let me disclose just a, a quick story to to break the ice, if you will. I, I, a few years ago, I was walking with my family in Miami Beach, and uh, it was a hot day, and we decided to get inside the lobby of a hotel. Inside the lobby, there were a lot of people congregated in front of a TV, paying attention to what was being said. And it was, to, to my surprise, it was not sports. So I pushed my way through to see what was going on. And to my surprise, it was you on the TV during the citizen hearing in Washington, the one organized by our friend Stephen Bassett. So everyone is mesmerized listening to you, Canada's former Minister of National Defense. So I'm looking around me, the multitude of people, and I was ready to say, hey, I know him. I interviewed him and I had dinner with his, he and his wife not too long ago. And my wife looked at me and said, don't say anything. No one is going to believe you. So I thought that was a funny story to tell Paul. Well, you've just opened up um, an avenue, I think, for me. That was a, that was a great uh, operation that Steve undertook. He was blessed by the fact that an American, no, a Canadian oil baron uh, staked him for a million dollars to get uh, six former um, members of Congress, and I think one senator, former senator, to act as a, a mock panel to listen to witnesses because there wasn't one of the six that knew what a UFO was or had any comprehension of really what was going on in the world. And so he... Um, he got together these six people. I, he had to pay them a little bit, I guess, for their efforts. And then he got 40 witnesses. And they uh, included some of the best ufologists in the uh, in the country and elsewhere. And uh, some former pilots, some former United States Air Force people, and um, a lot of very knowledgeable people in these areas that are so important. And uh, brought them to Washington. And we started on a Monday with six unbelievers. And it took us until Friday afternoon when I spoke to convince the last one of the six. And that shows you, in short, what the situation was in Congress, that all of these things were going on, including not only the fact that UFOs were real and that ETs were real, but that the United States government knew about it, that the United States Armed Forces were working with some of the some of the ETs from several sources, and that uh, they had spent 70 years back engineering uh, the technology for flying saucers, and that they had achieved miracles in that area and had, in fact, uh, put together a, a space force with uh, tremendous uh, capabilities. And none of these people knew it, and they were the ones who, under the law and under the Constitution, were supposed to be responsible for the money that was being spent. They didn't, they didn't have a clue. They were just, you know, as if they were living in another world. Well, their world was the other world. It was the world of, well, of naivety, I guess is the, word of, the way to put it. And they had believed the lies that had been told them during those uh, many years. And they hadn't pressed to uh, to get the truth. And so um, we've got a situation where no Congress yet has really been in the loop. They haven't known what's going on, been going on. They haven't been able to exercise their constitutional responsibilities to control the uh, the expenditures of the country, the taxpayers' expenditures, and no uh, president during that period has ever been allowed to go to Nevada and uh, Arizona, those areas, and inspect and see and really understand 
what's been going on there and what progress has been made and uh, just what a fantastic uh, operation it is and has been for decades and how many thousands of people are involved and how many vehicles have been produced and uh, their capabilities and uh, and all of this thing sort of thing has been in the pure dark because the so-called uh, uh, shadow government of the United States, otherwise known as an alternate government, um, had just kept them that way, kept them in the dark all of this time. And so uh, I don't know if you remember that uh, quote. I can't remember verbatim from uh, the late Senator Anui of uh, Hawaii. Oh, of course. <laughs> Well, did you remember it verbatim? Not verbatim, but I remember he said that we have a government within the government with its own laws, its own military. I mean, I, I can find it really quickly. Well, it's, it's, it, he said that they, they had their own Navy, their own Army, their own Air Force, their own means of raising money, their own ideas about the national security, and their own ideas about the law. And they operated outside the law. And that's a terrible indictment. And then, of course, this was uh, verified later. I think uh, Stephen Greer quoted um, uh, from uh, President Clinton that he had been asked by, uh, uh, what was her name, uh, Sarah McClendon, one of the regulars in the press gallery there, why he hadn't made public the information about uh, UFOs and DTs. And I can remember his quote verbatim, I think it was, Sarah, there is a government within the government, and I don't control it. End of quote. Now, can you imagine the man with allegedly his finger on the nuclear button has no idea what the troops under his command have been doing and are doing? And this is not democracy. This is just the opposite. And this is the reason we've got to get the truth out and why Americans have to take back control of their country. And here's the exact quote, folks. There exists a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of national interest, free from all checks and balances and free from the law itself. Which brings me to a next question, Paul. You remember the former Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, September the 10th, 2001, when he appeared in front of Congress to say that the Pentagon had lost $2.3 trillion. I believe some of the elected officials that were at the citizen hearing at, in Washington with you were in government at the time. Are we too... Are we to consider that perhaps some of that money went to black up ops uh, in, in, in black projects that pertain to a secret space program? I would say not only are we entitled to assume that, I would say that all of it probably did and more, which would have come from sources unknown. They spent far more money than anybody has any record of. Where they got it, we still don't know. Could have been from the Fed. Because the Fed um, represents the people who are members of the cabal, and it's never been properly uh, audited. And the latest figures, and I'm sure you've heard them, uh, going around Washington, is that there are $21 trillion missing. That's trillion, not 2.1, not 21 billion, but $21 trillion have been spent that was unaccounted for. I've heard Catherine Austin Fitz mentioned that figure too. So um, we've. this is the reason I keep underlining the fact they have to have a good look, bipartisan look. These are not partisan issues. These are issues affecting all the people. They are nonpartisan issues, and the two parties have to set up a, a committee and seek the truth because it's only the truth that can possibly set us free at this stage. It's a biblical term, as I recall, and it's the only way to go. And the sooner we get at it, the better. And I guess the only 
a positive thing. I was noticing that the two or three of the new um, members of Congress have uh, have experience in intelligence or in the armed forces and so on, and are are refusing to accept the status quo. So um, wherever there's life, there's hope, and I hope uh, that hope will be restored. Right now, the U.S. debt clock say states that we have about 22 point close to 22.3 trillion dollars if indeed we have lost 21 trillion dollars does that mean that the majority of us debt has gone into these projects and if that's the case if that's the case do we really have a civilization or 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 a what's the word i want a breakaway civilization it's inevitable that's the only place it could have gone because there was not a lot of money spent on infrastructure. There was not a lot of money spent on health care. There was not a lot of money spent on uh, on making it easier for people to get a higher education. So where did it go? It had to go somewhere. And that is, I think, about 99.9% sure uh, is where it went, was for the black operations. I always tell the story of my very first job as a teenager was a cashier, as a cashier at a grocery store. One day I lost $400 and I was almost fired. In a government like the United States in the 21st century, how do we get to lose track of a single dollar, let alone $2.3 trillion or $21 trillion? Well, that's the... <laughs> I don't want to make a joke, but that's the $64 trillion question that they used to have on the, I think at the time it was million, maybe on the uh, airwaves. They had a, a program by that name. And uh, that's it. Uh, where did it go? Where did it come from? Where did it go? And what is there to show for it? And is it the right thing to show for it? Because the the conclusion that some of us have come to is that war is obsolete. And so to be spending more on defense than anything else and the most things put together and developing weapons that can't be used, when I say can't be, I mean they could be, but they can't be and still um, have life, um, is just preposterous. And we, ha we have to do something to start uh, start winding down the spell of the spending for uh, for armaments because the the kinds of weapons that they have developed in the last few years are just so lethal that they could kill millions of people uh, you know without any difficulty at all and uh, you go back over history and it's been a, a, an escalation from the days when they Used uh, clubs to fight, and then uh, swords and uh, and bows and arrows, and then uh, guns of various uh, kinds and automatic guns, and then uh, and then other weapons, bombs and missiles, and all of this sort of thing. And then finally, at the end of the war, of course, the the detonation of two terrible. Um, atomic weapons, and I regret to say that the first one was on my birthday, which doesn't oh, make me. Oh, that's the, right. Yeah, August the sixth. Yeah. So um, it's been escalating. Well, then now we have not only advanced uh, lasers and things like that; we have particle guns, and uh, this is stuff right out of Buck Rogers in the twenty-fifth century. For anybody that's old enough to remember that, and they can. Uh, they can just, you know, knock things down and kill people with such efficiency that a, a good third world war could wipe out nearly the entire human species. And that, I think, is what many of the ETs are afraid of. <clears throat> because the majority of the ET species, as you know, are benign. And most of them are staunch supporters of the creator and they work together and it's only uh, maybe one or two species that uh, that are on the other side and uh, and with the troublemakers 
the ones that want to run the world uh, as a dictatorship and uh, and to depopulate in a way that's uh, almost incomprehensible. So uh, we, we have to stop increasing the amount of money for uh, for weapons. And I think the United States has got to take the lead because they've been so far ahead of the rest. They've been spending more than twice as much as anybody else and when, with no real enemy. So this is the this is the fallout from the industrial uh, military industrial con- complex, which became the military industrial intelligence complex, which is all part of the cabal, as I and others call it. And uh, and we've got to uh, well, we can't live with it because if we try to live with it, one of those one day there's going to be a, a mistake. Somebody's going to make a mistake or or say something or do something that would uh, cause uh, an escalation that would get out of control and uh, there would just be no future for most of us. Well, Paul, you are an expert in economics and monetary policy. I'm very curious. If you were part of the government and you saw Rumsfeld coming forward to say that they lost that amount of, of, of money, we have an inspector general. We have different entities within our own government that could track a dollar that comes from the treasury, it's then appropriated to different branches of, of the military or, or any other entity. Shouldn't we have a record tracking every penny that goes from point A to point B, C, D, Z? That's what your constitution says, yes. Right. <clears throat> That's what has been ignored for all of these years by the shadow government, as it were. And uh, no, I, I think it was Ron Paul that uh, was responsible for the first audit of any kind of the Fed. Imagine having a, a big institution responsible for creating your money that was never audited. And in one of my books, I'm not sure which one, whether it was the Money Mafia or the latest one, Hope Restored, I list um, the, diff- the different projects that the Fed um, supported to a total of, I think it was over $2 trillion, all people that they were concerned about, but had nothing to do with the American people. And so how can the Fed uh, say, well, we don't have to, have to uh, account to the American people when they have an exclusive right to create your money, which belongs to the people, which is a sovereign right. And just because the Congress uh, in the early uh, years of the last century gave away that right, there's still no reason why it uh, has, shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't be accounted for, because that's the way the system is supposed to run. But now, of course, if, you're go- if you want to get off on the money thing for a minute, um, one of the one of the three big issues facing the world is, in fact, the way money is created. Very few people understand how that is. They think money is some way tangible. It's not. All of our money is created as debt by the banking system. They have a monopoly to create money. In the case of the United States, they were given that monopoly by Congress. I think it was the day before Christmas. Um, and the congressmen were obviously thinking about sugar plum fairies instead of uh, <laughs> their economics. And, uh, and so they handed over this most valuable uh, thing that any country has, which is their power to create money and gave it to the wealthiest bankers in the world, which is, of course, what the setup was intended to be. Well, then they started a system whereby if the United States uh, people, the government, wanted some of that money, they had to borrow it, even though the banking system creates it out of thin air. They borrowed it, and then they have to return it, both principal and interest. And uh, but nobody 
creates any money with which to do either. So we run up these huge debts because in order to pay the principal and interest of our debt, we have to borrow more and go further and further into debt. And as of this day, there is more debt in the world than there is money. And how you account for that is just one more of the conundrums that I can't understand. Well, I do understand, but it should never have happened. So we have to change the system dramatically. And uh, in uh, both of my most recent books, I propose um, a, a revolutionary change in the system, taking away the, uh, the monopoly for private people to create all of this money and uh, to for the Fed to be nationalized, and then for the government to create some government-created debt-free money, money that doesn't have to be repaid, money that doesn't have to be repaid at all, let alone with interest, and start using it to solve the real problems of the people and to make sure that they've got enough to eat, enough to... Uh, to cover their mortgage and enough to look after their education and so on. And it's uh, it's easy to do if we were able to have politicians who had the guts and the vision to take the cabal on for size. And uh, so I don't know, I, I think Sandra, at least Canada would be a good place to start. And I've tried to persuade the last two governments in our country to uh, to be the front runners and show the world what to do. <clears throat> they just uh, sort of stare blankly and, uh, and go back into their holes and uh, keep on with the system that's put us so far in debt. And, you know, Mel, we had a system that worked in our country. I call it uh, the Canadian precedent. We had our when we established um, our Bank of Canada in 1935, but as a partly privately owned uh, institution. And then in 1938, we had a prime minister who had been uh, taught basic uh, economics by uh, one man from Vancouver. And the government nationalized the Bank of Canada and bought up all the shares, which were held by the Minister of Finance on behalf of the Canadian people. Well, 1938, there are absolutely no jobs in Canada. The war comes along, and uh, all of a sudden, everybody's working in the armed forces, building factories, building munitions, and so on. And Canada played a very significant part in World War II, uh, far greater than uh, would be proportional to our to our population. And uh, you say, well, where when there was no money in the depression and no jobs, that suddenly the government get the money to do all of these miraculous things? Well, the answer is the Bank of Canada printed it, P-R-I-N-T-E-D. <clears throat> and the mechanism was easy. The government of Canada would give the Bank of Canada a bond, low interest rates. The Bank of Canada would print the money to buy the bond and get handed over to the government to spend to, to pay uh, those of us who were in the armed forces and others and for the uh, munitions and so on. And then uh, the government would pay the Bank of Canada interest on the bond and the Bank of Canada would pay it back to the government as dividends because we own the Bank of Canada. In other words, they provided us with near zero cost money. And they did that from 1939 right through until 1974, so that it got us out of the Great Depression, helped finance the war, and then the post-war period when we built the Trans-Canada Highway and and our share of the of the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was the largest share on the Dew Line, that was the distant early warning line that went right around the continent to uh, to watch for uh, Soviet bombers. And very expensive. We paid for that and all of these things and much, much more and had no debt. And then all of a sudden, in um, 1974, the, our then ba uh, banker, the um, 
Bank of Canada governor, changed the system and started taking his orders from the Bank for International Settlements, which in fact is run by the richest people in the world. Yeah. And we started to have to, instead of borrowing so much from the Bank of Canada at low interest, we had to start paying market rates. <clears throat> Paul Volcker almost uh, capsized the system with his 18% uh, uh, interest rates during to create this uh, big recession in 1981-82. In our country, we did, went one better up to about 22%. At that percent, the debt that you accumulate doubles every four years. And the whole thing has been out of control ever since. And one of the people that knows the most about this subject is a lady called Ellen Hodgson Brown in California and her book, uh, Web of Debt, in the first hundred pages tells you all about it and how the system works. And it is a dandy, I can tell you. And not only that, Mel, but she says that after the bankers got away with the Fed, they sent out a group to, to find out the 25 most influential papers in the United States. And then the bankers and their allies bought a, either a controlling interest in the paper or a controlling interest in its editorial content. To control so the, public opinion. To, yeah, stifle it so there'd be no debate. And one has to assume that that kind of control still exists today. And just one more reference to Ellen Brown. She was talking to me one day and she said, do you know how much this cost the Canadian people uh, since you changed the system in 1974? She said over a trillion dollars. Well, a trillion dollars isn't much in the U.S., but a trillion dollars is a lot of money in Canada, I can tell you. And I frankly was skeptical, and I shouldn't have, because I know her well and she knows her stuff. So I then still had uh, privileges with the parliamentary uh, library. It's, uh, it's research group there, and I sent them a letter and asked them to... Uh, to give me the figures for how much uh, we had paid for interest from 1974 up to date. And the answer came back from 74-75 from fiscal year to 2013-14 fiscal year, we had spent $1.13 trillion for interest unnecessarily. And this is what's going on around the world now. It's the reason the United States is so far in debt. It's the reason the world's so far in debt. Let me ask you this, Paul, because when I have these conversations for the past 20, 30 years with people, I remember finding out about this in the 80s. And I hardly talked about it, even at a university. My professors, even my economics professors, would look at me with fluoridated eyes as if, why are you talking about this? almost as if this is not part of their toolbox or their curriculum to, to discuss. But fast forward to, to now, for example. Why right. can't a president send the Marines to the Federal Reserve to say, effective immediately, you have been nationalized, we forgive the debt, and immediately our Treasury gets to print our currency? Why can't that happen? Is it because if any president tries to do that, they're going to go through what JFK went through? Um, wouldn't want to speculate on that. But it, any president would need the support of Congress people to do it. And it can be done legally. All he has to do is to present a bill to Congress and get it passed and, uh, and buy it and then uh, uh, set the price on it, which is... Uh, reasonable for the people and doesn't uh, leave the trillions of dollars and potential uh, profits to the bankers who had bought the system. But our Congress is bought and paid for by the banks, by big pharma. So I don't think this would ever be accomplished. Don't Can't we have a precedent by executive order? And I hate executive orders, but to me, this is a matter of national, not only national security, but national survival. If this continues, 21 
$22 trillion. This is this cannot be paid ever. Of course not. You have to monetize some of it. And that's what the, the I'm proposing in my books with the uh, I have a formula there that I'm trying to sell and I hope that I can sell it at home and then I hope that it will spread around the world but it has to come from the people. Politicians are very slow in making this kind of change, and uh, especially if they're looking forward to uh, how they get their uh, their funds for the next election campaign. And it has to be the people that say, this is something we want done. And if you don't do it, we're going to work our backs off to make sure that you don't get elected the next time around. And if you can get that message through to enough politicians, something will change. But not until that happens. As you call it, this was the uh, is the biggest heist in history. How did we allow this to happen? They create inflation. They create depressions. They basically orchestrate when the economy will crash, so that they're ready to buy all the assets at a fraction of the of of what they cost, and start the cycle all over again. You state the case well. That's the way the system works. And there have been, I forget how many, something like 23 or 24 depressions or recessions in the last 110 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of them were necessary, not a one. But it's just that the, uh, the reigning minority have been so successful in brainwashing the people that, um, you know, change is very difficult. I think it was a, Two years ago, that the Fed spent uh, $38 million, or maybe it was a year later, it was $40 million, to pay economists to write articles. And some of those economists happened to be, the, excuse me, <clears throat> happened to be the editors of economic magazines. Well, How is that different? Of- How is that different, Paul, from, again, I, I put Big Pharma right there with banks and the Fed. How different is Big Pharma sending millions of dollars to multiple universities for research? And the same thing can be said about the Fed. Send millions of dollars to universities and economists so they can positively portray the labor, the great labor that the Fed is performing. Well, that's the way the system's been working. And uh, we'll continue to uh, to do so until uh, somebody finally does something about it. So there's no, I believe there's no jurisdiction, there's no over congressional oversight, and the only audit that happened years ago was to audit their art, their artwork, and their office supplies. Nothing else was allowed. So when Ron Paul says let's audit the Fed, I say abolish the Fed. No, I say abolish the Fed too. But the, uh, he did arrange a partial audit, which uh, came up with these numbers that I have in my book, and they're really appalling. I wish people would read them and just see what the Fed, how Fed creates money for its friends and uh, not for the people that uh, it should be looked after. Was this franchise, can we call it a franchise instead of a monopoly franchise? granted to this group of bankers, was it in perpetuity or was there a, a limit, say, 100 years? No, it's a, it was a bill of Congress, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's the law of the land until it's changed. It can be changed. It can be revoked. Congress has the power to do it. Just as our first uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, Graham Towers, whenever he was asked a question about what the government could do, would say Parliament can do what it wants. Parliament has to do it. So translate, Congress can do what it wants. Congress can change the system. Congress can revoke the act which set up the the Fed. It can amend or revoke, and that is what it has to do. And that's one of the three major things that has to be addressed and the sooner it's addressed uh, the better because when you get to uh, an even greater problem of global warming 
you've got to get the money somewhere to do it fast, or we are going to be in terrible, terrible trouble. And that means a very large infusion of government-created debt-free money, in addition to the reductions in spending for the military and so on. So these are all on the uh, on the list of, uh, of must-dos when Congress really finally uh, turns its attention to the important issues before it in the day. I wish more people, Paul, understood the chronology and the reasoning behind all of this. I mean, at least you were lucky that you wait. You did this in 1974, but since 1913, we get the Federal Reserve Act. 1914, we get the Tax Revenue Act, which we didn't have to pay taxes before. And then immediately after, what do we get? The First World War. Well, we need the people to pay for those wars. That's what we get, in, you know, enacted that, that Tax Revenue Act. And then World War II, and we've been in at war for 96% of our history as a nation. I wonder if most people understood this. Well, I don't think so. <clears throat> and, uh, and more specifically, more recently, I'm sure you've heard uh, Carol Rosen's uh, list of things that would happen that was given to her by Von Braun. Yes. And uh, when uh, General Eisenhower warned the people to beware of the industrial-military complex, he was really referring to the formation of the alternate government and the, uh, the lack of uh, congressional supervision and so on. Partly engineered, um, I suspect, by Nelson Rockefeller. <clears throat> and uh, so, as Carol said, as, as Von Braun got older and was, he thought, on his deathbed, he said that this complex with its black ops had to have an enemy to justify huge defense expenditures because the United States had no enemies at the time, and nobody was going to attack the United States. So they had to create enemies in the minds of the people to justify the, the really transfer of the people's money to military endeavors. And he said, first, it will be the communists. So we had the Cold War. And uh, consequently, ran a race with the, the Soviet to uh, produce armaments and uh, try and subvert pe pe people around the world. <clears throat> and then, when uh, when that ran out, the, the wall, Berlin Wall, came down. That was the time, really, to make peace and to have the kind of world that we know is possible, and that, frankly is essential if we're going to have the continuation of our species uh, for very long. So uh, we ran out of the Cold War, and then von Braun had said the next, um, the next villain would have to be the terrorists. But at the time, the, uh, the terrorists were needed. There weren't very many of them. There were just a handful. They could have been controlled by police action and intelligence actions. <clears throat> and um, we were pretty well under control. But then somebody decided, uh, and this was written in uh, a plan for a new American century, as it ended up being called. Um, they needed an incident comparable to Pearl Harbor to get the people hyped up for more wars. So they baked up 9-11. And in my First one of the trilogy books, I said there were a lot of unanswered questions. <clears throat> I was much more definitive in the second book and said it was an inside job. And I read a 350-page book as to who was responsible. And that has never been made public. It's some of it now being circulated on the Internet for anybody who wants to take a look for it. But uh, it's never been made public, uh, nor has the extraordinary effort that was made to legitimize the official version of what happened afterward. And I mean, it was so ridiculous. And people fall for this stuff so easily. 
because they show you picture after picture of these two little planes bouncing into the the towers. With and they were not even the, bouncing. They were melting into it. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> but they're not enough either kinetic or or um, <clears throat> um, heat energy to bring down anything. Right. And ultimately, five buildings come down. And don't forget Building 7, which stored a lot of interesting stuff. The SEC, right. Enron, almost like Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. A lot of information was transferred there, and all of a sudden, boom, it blew up. It was gone, yeah. And then afterwards, the to, to convince people that this was really res the responsibility of some Arab uh, hypercub flyers, <laughs> it just shows you the power of a controlled press. And when you tell people, well, we had the project for New American Century, and as you correctly quoted, we need a catalyzing event. So that was written before by the same people who orchestrated this whole event. They were part of the, can we call them the cabal? Yeah, and then, And then they we were. get immediately the Patriot Act years later, and we have the Bushes and Obama. It's the same thing. And then we get the National Defense Authorization Act. It's year after year. We give our rights in lieu of security. And as Benjamin Franklin said, we, what is that quote? If you give your rights in lieu of security, you get none, yeah. neither. Yeah. And that's what's happened. So now. Well, something different has got to happen. When you talk about ET, Canada, vast amount of territory during your time in government, and perhaps I don't know if you have a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement due to national security in, in that part of the world, but such a vast amount of territory. Did you hear of any incidents, any crashes during your tenure in any capacity? Not while I was a minister. The only thing I got was um, uh, sightings reports. And these came across my desk. And I was so busy at the time... Uh, trying to unify the Army, Navy, and Air Force into a single Canadian Defense Force, that I didn't uh, really have time to uh, to pay much attention. Um, Bob McNamara said he would tell me anything I wanted to know, but if you didn't know what questions to ask, <clears throat> you couldn't find anything out. And um, so it was only really after I got interested in these things that I dug into these old files and about 80% of those sightings were natural phenomena, and 15 to 20% were they couldn't account for, which means that they were genuine, unidentified flying objects. And um, that's about, I think, par for the course with the most countries. And um, apart from that, and, and then in 1967, which was our centennial year in Canada, when I went to a little town in a little bilingual town in Alberta to dedicate the world's uh, first flying saucer landing pad. And I didn't really realize at the time how far ahead those people were, uh, certainly of me. Um, I didn't really understand what was going on until uh, 2005 when I was first exposed to uh, to what the real situation was. 19, in 2005, a young uh, Canadian uh, bilingual chap from Ottawa kept sending me um, papers on the subject, and I told him, Pierre, I don't have time to read them. And he said, well, just uh, put them on a shelf for a rainy day, and and he sent me a book called The Day After Roswell. I said that would be an interesting read sometime. And uh, so I made a note of it. I'll take uh, my holiday the next summer and, uh, and read. And uh, Pierre also asked me to watch a two-hour special by ABC Television put together by Peter Jennings from Ottawa. And uh, during the two-hour special, there were 
former Air Force uh, pilots, former uh, civil pilots, air traffic controllers, policemen, all of these people saying that they had seen UFOs. And I said to myself, why would they lie about it? I mean, what's in it for them to go on a program and lie about something like that? They're not getting paid. And so I put that in the back of my head. Well, then in 2004, I guess it actually was, uh, when I went to look for the day after Roswell, I couldn't find it, so I took the life of Pi instead. <clears throat> it was very entertaining. I didn't really know until near the end whether it was fiction or fact. Um, but then in 2005, I was looking for another book and couldn't find it, and they're staring me in the face was the day after Roswell. So I read it, and I wasn't halfway through it until I said, this is authentic. Um, I recognized the names of the generals and the air bases from my days in national defense. That's where the background came in to be handy. And uh, so we were at the lake, and uh, my nephew came along. He had one of, rented one of the cabins there. <laughs> he asked me what I was reading, and I, said, I told him, and he said, well, I'm a skeptic. And he, uh, I said, but you're, oh, you're allowed to be a skeptic. We still have some freedom of uh, speech in this uh, country. It's getting less all the time. And uh, he went home, and two days later, he phoned me and said, I told the general what you were reading. And he said, um, every word is true and more. And uh, where can I get a copy of the book? So I told him. Wow. Coincidentally... I don't think these things often do happen coincidentally. I think in many cases like this, they were preordained. But coincidentally, I had been invited by two of our major ufologists here in Canada at the time, Victor Vigiani and uh, Mike Bird, to address a symposium in uh, Toronto at Convocation Hall, which is uh, the big hall at the University of Toronto, where all of us lined up to get our diplomas uh, years ago. And uh, <clears throat> I had absolutely no intention of going there because I was not a ufologist, knew nothing about the, the, whole, the whole thing. And, uh, but I, one of my many sins, uh, Mel, was uh, procrastination, and I hadn't let them know. So uh, when I finished reading the book, I said, this is very important. There are some very important issues here um, that the American people should know about. And I have a moral duty to say something about it. Well, two, th two problems. One, I, I wanted to hear the word uh, from the general directly, and uh, <clears throat> I had met him once. So um, I asked my nephew to... Uh, give him a heads up that I'd be calling and to get his number for me. And uh, so when I called, he didn't even give me time to say, hello, how are you? He said, every word is true and more. And uh, he then went on to tell me about the more to the extension tent that he thought he could uh, do within his, uh, his oath. And one of the things he said was that there have been face-to-face -face meetings between U.S. officials and representatives from other planets and star systems. And that was all the extra proof I needed. But one other thing, I was getting married at least one week to the day after the symposium. <clears throat> and so I phoned my fiance, who just happened to be the widow of my best friend ever. And we'd known each other for 35 years. And uh, as couples, we had spent time together, working together, praying together, traveling together, taking holidays together. So it just seemed like a natural that we get together and carry the flag. And I'd ask her to marry me, and she said she would, but I phoned her. And she was not what you would call wildly enthusiastic about me getting into the subject, <clears throat> because at the time she kind of thought maybe it was a bit weird. Maybe it still does, but not to the same extent, because she knows now a lot of the things that are really going on. But she said, if I felt that it was my responsibility to do it, that would be that would be okay. And I said, well, it'll just be a one-off, and that'll that'll be the end of it. So I 
spoke, and that's where I said, as you quoted earlier, that uh, UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. Well, of course, that it was not to be a one-off. Things started happening. Um, I got people sent me documents from the States, from Canada, from other places in the world, from France and England, Australia. Some of them highly classified, some of them not. And of course, I read them all and I I learned to be able to tell the week from the chaff. That's the advantage of being a farm boy. And you, uh, you soon get to be able to discern what is legitimate and what isn't. And then people started sending me books. I can't remember how many, the dozens. I read every single one of them. And that's really how my education started. And then it's never stopped. It's, uh, I, I've just kept reading and, uh, and interviewing people and talking to abductees and to all kinds of people who have been in the business and who have been involved in black ops and other things. And it's the best line in my, the first book of my, my trilogy, uh, Mel was, I didn't know how much I didn't know because I didn't know how much there was to know. And that's as true today as it was when I first wrote it. And I had the pleasure of, of meeting Sandra years ago with you during dinner. Has she embraced your research now? Uh, to a very large extent. She still has the odd reservation um, and uh, would prefer, of course, a, a more what we would call normal approach to things. But I must say she's been pacified to a considerable extent in the last little while when there have been bits of information leaked out, uh, presumably from the Pentagon and more recently for the U.S. from the U.S. Navy, Navy. and uh, we're getting uh, we're getting occasional articles now in the Toronto Press, so that more people are being exposed to it. And uh, she says, "No, they won't think you're so much of a nut." And uh, so, yes, so she's uh, this is helping, and I think it will continue. I think uh, we had a former colleague in the Pearson government who used to say I was ahead of the curve. Sometimes he'd say 10 years, sometimes 15, sometimes 25. But <clears throat> um, I would say in this case, I was about 15 years ahead of the curve and that uh, things are going to change pretty quickly because they have to. And whether the Navy is trying to set us up for greater disclosure or not, I don't know. But Mel, ask yourself this question. How does a government that doesn't admit that UFOs exist all of a sudden want to set up a space command, a space force of UFOs, of anti-gravity machines? How the big jump from not even admitting the existence of any of this stuff so they go right through to the end of the 70-year cycle and say, but now, ladies and gentlemen, look what's behind the screen and see what we've been doing all of these years and ante up the money that we need to do even more of it. We have to take our one and only break, but I'm going to leave with two points that I'd like you to address when we come back, because this conversation is evolving into something I really wanted to discuss with you. One question, and I'll get your answer on the other side. Had you known then, when you were Minister of National Defense in Canada, had you known then what you know now, would you have acted differently back then? And also, we discussed the great work of Carol Rosen and the testimonial from Dr. Werner von Braun. The first, as you said, was the Cold War. Then there will be the boogeyman or terrorism. Then a celestial object approaching, and the last card will be an alien invasion that's going to unite the world. With what's happening now, we lost trillions of dollars, $21 trillion, the Space Force, the Navy coming out with protocols that the people are not going to find out what they are. I read an article that said that people are not ready for the truth. All these things I want to discuss, is this in preparation to perhaps a fake alien invasion? How can people buy 
your books and learn more about your work, Paul? They can get my books from any of their uh, book dealers or from Amazon, or they can get them, uh, if they want an autographed copy, they can get them from my website, which is paulhellyerweb.com. That's all one word, Paul Hellyer Web. It's uh, Hellyer is H-E-L-L-Y-E-R, so paulhellyerweb.com. And you can get any one of the uh, books of my trilogy and others uh, from uh, that website at the uh, regular price, and uh, I'll autograph them for you. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm delighted to have the Honorable Paul Halier with us. One more hour when we come back in the member section. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.